Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So today I am absolutely thrilled because I have one of my all-time favourite authors with me today. Um, Sophie Laguna is an author of adult books. She has a comprehensive list of awards and accolades to her name, including winner of the Miles Franklin for Eye of the Sheep in 2015. Sophie is an award-winning children's author as well. Her many books have been published in Australia, the US and the UK. Sophie's with me today to talk about her most recent book, The Glow. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. So I love The Glow. It was a fun and engaging book and wonderfully spooky. <laughs> <laughs> it was also illustrated by Mark McBride, who is in fact your husband. He is in fact. Yes. So dinner table conversation at your house is obviously vastly different to the rest of us. <laughs> what is your process together? So I think... The sense I've made of it is that, you know, after almost two decades of living with the man, I've absorbed all of his preoccupations and I've been exposed to scary films and science fiction. And I, I don't know, I, I, I know that I wouldn't have written the novel if I didn't live with Mark. I think, again, and this is all unconscious, I think on some level... That it, is, that it is Mark's story. I understand the protagonist, Megan, is a, a girl and, you know, growing up in a very different place to that which Mark grew up, which was Northern Ireland. But at the same time, it is a book about an obsession with drawing spooky ah. monsters and the strange contradiction that the spookier the monsters are that the protagonist draws, the calmer she feels. Yes. Yeah. Great premise. Um, and also in your book, the, the words and the pictures complement each other so well. So are there any moments where you disagree on what you're doing artistically? Fortunately, um, I seem to be one of those writers who once that work is done, once the tale is told, I'm happy to surrender the text. I mean, you know, this... this of naturally is a little bit different since I live with the illustrator. But um, all I can remember in those early days of him showing me the work was feeling absolutely thrilled with the range in those illustrations, you know, from very naturalistic beach scenes to hyper-real sort of fanged monsters. I, um, I, yeah. loved, I loved the monsters. The, the, the pictures were fantastic. They, they were incredible. You know, in a, in a very early review, um, the, re, the review in Books and Publishing said something like, the pictures take centre stage in this book. Uh, I, I feel like I wrote it without again realising it, before the pictures, it's a platform for those pictures. Yeah. I couldn't be happier. And Mark got to do endless battle scenes. Yes. And he's an app, he, he loves battle scenes. So, so, so what's it yeah. like when, um, when you get presented with an illustration of 
the work that you've just written? What's the feeling like? So this is a little bit different and I should tell you that it was Mark's illustrations that brought about the story in the first place. Okay. So there was um, a small window in my writing life. I was probably waiting for the last adult novel it was probably at some stage in the editorial process with the editor and so there was a window and um this that that's when I was open and I saw one of Mark's illustrations probably left on the kitchen table and And it was this spooky glowing light that you couldn't quite tell where it was emanating oh. from. And I was, uh, uh, it, it, that, that was the seed. Oh, so you bring us now to essentially what is the monster in the book. So would you be able to read for me that page Absolutely. 31 and then we'll be able to talk in more detail about this incredible monster that you've created. Megan put away her sketchbook and looked through the window. She squinted. Was there something different about the light out there? Nobody else seemed particularly interested, but it was strange, cold, even though the day itself was hot. It made Megan uneasy. She glanced across the aisle at Gabby's sprout. Gabby was the loudest on the bus. She bullied the younger kids, teased Megan about what she was doing. Megan, is that a picture of your latest boyfriend? Today Gabby's sprout was sitting still, staring directly ahead. She didn't appear unhappy. She wasn't fighting anyone or picking on anyone just staring. Next to Megan sat Bindi Foster, who was staring at her phone. Bindi was in her class, and she was always getting told to put her phone away. She'd be checking it every minute of the day if she could. Megan glanced at the screen in Bindi's hand. It was blank. The phone was obviously switched on, glowing, but blank. The pale blue light reflected in Bindi's cheeks. Awesome. I love the whole concept. I love that central monster that you've created, the glow. So you were about to describe to me the moment of inspiration you had. It was this deadly glowing light that, uh, that was difficult to pinpoint where it had come from. And it put, you know, I don't think this is giving too much away, when it put people to sleep, it put people into a kind of trance. It stole, how would you describe it? It turned them into zombie-like, dead sort of, in, dead alive characters. Yeah. So it's very sci-fi in that sort it's of way. It's very sci-fi. Yeah. And um, as the story, um, you know, as I went along, so Megan, it, 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 Megan is busy drawing and suddenly compelled to draw this strange monster that she's never drawn before and at the same time she's noticing increasingly this blue light that she describes in the book. Excuse me, which is a wonderful premise and very apt for our time, I thought. <laughs> I didn't realise it was going to be so apt for our time. It really that, is. That, that's not all was it. You know, I'm thinking now, is that, is that why I wrote it? Probably, probably it's a thread in the story. There is something in there around the dangers um, of, this, uh, uh, of this light, around technology, let's mm. face it. Uh, and, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the, that's, that's the theme, isn't it, of the story? Yes, exactly. So, which brings me to a question. Do you think we need to be afraid of screens and technology? Are you frightened of what is around the corner? 
I mean, we all are. Yeah, no, because you're, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to just have to consider that for a moment. Mm. You know, what do I feel? Because the novel suggests that I am, that I am fearful. And, and I think my relationship with it is conflicted. And I think I am cranky with it. Mm. Yeah, and I am, I am worried about it. But I don't just want to be, you know, thinking in well-worn paths that we're. Uh, but but I am, but I am anxious about it. When I see groups of young people, all of them not communicating, but sitting, yeah, looking at a screen, I. I uh, I feel despairing sometimes, but none, nobody needs to hear those negatives repeated over and over. I am aware that there is a great deal, many, many ways in which technology is connecting us and connecting people who have not pluses. before. Yeah. There are pluses. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are pluses, but the book really is about creativity, isn't it? It's it a, is. It's about the redemptive and... and of the friendship. So it, it's, a, it's very much about the friendship and being, you know, sticking with your truest self. Um, and yes, courage, I like the and, way you and put using that. and using um, creativity to over, overcome. Yes. It, it's a yes. redemptive story. It's a it's yes. full of hope. And I You're when right. I read it, I yeah. read it uh, as an adult, ex- really engaged and, and attached yeah. to it. And my only yeah. fi- worry was that my kids were too old to fully appreciate it. So wow. I wish they had have been in that age yeah. between sort of eight and twelve. Yeah. Which is a gift as a family to sit down to this book, The Glow, every night after dinner and watch and, you know, listen to Mm. dad or mum read out the Mm. text or take it in Mm. turns. I just thought that would be the ultimate family joiner, you know. I hope you're not talking about our family, though. (laughs) (laughs) So, how do do your boys. Like oh no! The glow. Do they, so they, they don't. I imagine that you're no, sitting down reading the so glow together. I, that's yeah, I think we call <laughs> that idealisation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, phew, I feel better about myself. Um, I hope many other families are doing just just as you've described. Um, so I have another quick question for you before we need to move on. Yes. Um, how has your training as an actor and work as an actor affected you or enabled you as a writer? I'm so glad you asked that because my thinking around it has shifted recently. Oh. I've always just thought that the person that I am ended up ended up acting and that, you know, one way or another the path then led to writing. But I, I now think that all of those years as an actor has impacted, has impacted, has helped a great deal, has meant that I'm... You know, because it's a chicken or the egg. You know, could you say that my fe- a feel for character is because because I was exactly. an actor, or can you, or could you say that working all those years as an actor, you know, every single day we're living is feeding our writing. So all those years where that was my focus, I suppose, has brought me to the place I am now. Absolutely, and you can really see that. You can really feel the character's journey in your work, like. I imagine like an actor feels the character as they perform. I think they're very synonymous. Well, you've got that background as an actor, so that's you, you can make those connections and see that. Do you think it is like that? Um, I, I, I think I, yeah. I, I really relate to your yeah. work as an actor, you know, and yeah. and and a writer as well. I think they yeah. are, you know, inextricably connected too. Yeah. So thank you for being my guest today, Sophie Laguna. Thank you, and, Lisa. Um, 
The Glow is published by Alan and Unwin. Thank you so much for coming along today. My pleasure. And I thank, take you over to David. Thank you, Lisa. In a relationship with an illustrator, you'd, you'd always know where to draw the line, wouldn't you? <laughs> Sorry, that's a, an old <laughs> fart joke like me. I apologise. That was not worthy of me. But anyway, look, The Secret History of the Rainbow Trout Private Hotel is a rather quirky novel by David Metzenthon. So, David, welcome back to 3CR. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, David. Now, this novel virtually works as a metaphor for life's journey. I mean, Andy Lightfoot is your protagonist, but he's on a gap year and he ends up at the Rainbow Trout Private Hotel. Even the, even the title of it is sort of enticing and uh, he's sort of entering a whole other universe. And the first indication, for me anyway, was the landscape. Where's Andy from? Where is the uh, hotel? Well, he's on. He's from the flatlands around the Murray, and his back window looks across flat brown paddocks to the railway line. And the and the river meanders. Yeah, the Murray. The Murray meanders yeah. through the red gums. But up at the hotel, where's the hotel? And, and well, what's <clears> that? The landscape. It's interesting. Right there. With Sophie's book, The Glow, this book springs out of the, out of the light as well. I can barely read this. Where, well, Do you it, need my reading glasses, no, I've got mate? My own, but don't worry, I'll just describe <laughs> it. The whole book, like when I was eighteen and I left, and I was in New Zealand, and these hippies told me you've got to go to this lake called Lake Wakarimoana. We're yep. on this ship, and I go, yeah, and they go, oh man, it's really everything's there. It's like heaven, you know. You just you know just chill and this blah blah. We're only going back like forty five years, right? And I can remember hitchhiking into this lake, and I was on a dirt road, and then suddenly there was this perfect light. It was golden, and it was like. I looked and I could see the lake through the trees and it was just kind of this this golden glow. And out of that, like all these years later, I remember this lake and I just moved it to Australia. Yeah, but that's what we do. When, when you and I went backpacking in the good old days before mobile phones and all of that sort of thing, you'd mm. team up with people at mm. a youth hostel and away mm. you'd go. They'd tell you about some place or other. And, yeah. and that's what basically Andy's doing here. Absolutely. And in this in this glow, like... And I still remember it. Um, obviously, I wanted... Lake Wakari Moana didn't turn out to be as mysterious <laughs> for children. <laughs> but uh, obviously, it, it's a trigger. And um, to, and I just imagined uh, all these years later this but does it, strange world at the did, end of the did lake. It, did it change your life as it changes Andy's? Because the first person he meets is Deborah. And she's an amalgam of philosophies, languages, cultures. Um, religions. She, religions. And yeah. an, an incredible character. Um, she invites him to come and work at the hotel. But Irish, Jewish, uh, what is Musa and Yetzirah? They're two, and I'm not a Jew. So, but I'll tell you, when I was doing my research, because I'm very interested in Judaism and stuff like that, um, I joined a kind of... I contacted a site, uh, it's called My Jewish Learning in New York, and and I actually get emails and recipes every day. In fact, I got one today about a prayer that you should say after getting out of the shower in the morning. So it's amazing. And, and the two ways of thinking are, Musa is, um, and I, I'm not a Jew, but I, I'll try and explain into my kind of, and I'm not a theologist either. <laughs> I'm a, just a bogan, but, and I don't go to church, but... Uh, Musa is 
always try and do well, always try and do good, like yeah. be kind, always be kind. But Yetzirah is sometimes you have to do evil to do good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I'm not going to go into whole things, but sometimes if someone invades your house, you have to stop them. And how you stop them might be very evil, but how you save your family or you save someone else. And it's sort of yin and yang, but mm. it one. But Deborah represents a sort of different thinking, different attitude, different influences. And there's a lovely line in there. Because, uh, even even a Jew can be a Buddhist. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and in fact, lots of Jews are. Like, truly, they are. And, uh, you know, it's one, again, I'm not Buddhist, but one is kind of doesn't preclude the other. Right. It's kind of like a Venn diagram. But, here, but here's Andy meeting different people. But also then, there's a whole different attitude at the hotel, it doesn't sort of fit into the, you know, economic imperative. What's the attitude in the hotel when it comes to working? Oh, everyone who stays at the hotel brings something and everyone hopefully goes away, um, a guest goes away learning something. But Andy's offered a job and, and Deborah says, well, you know, look, there's jobs there. He goes, I don't want to pay. I haven't got any money. And she goes, oh, you don't, ha- you don't need to pay. But you can work there and you work for free and... You give us the amount of work that you think is is equitable, and that's how we go. And and Andy's dad's a truck driver, and he would have thought that's the dumbest idea ever. But Andy takes it on because he goes, well, you know, Deborah's hinting, and he says, you know, he felt that she had a, a greater knowledge than him, and more tu- intuition, and that she was offering him, and that she actually knew more about him than you, he knew himself. So he goes around there, and he 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 enters his world. But it also represents a different way of looking at the world from how Andy was raised. So he's coming across all of these different experiences. This leads us then into the characters in the novel, all of whom are unique. And we're not going to be able to get through them all, but Annika McGinn? Well, Annika's an ex-actor, and she's uh, exiled voluntarily to the top story because she's she's not right. And, her, and Julia explains it, who's running the hotel, who is 12 years old. She says, our mother is currently out of action um, and you'll meet her, but you will find her an amazing person, but But she's struggling. She's struggling, or in actor parlance, resting. Uh, But she's resting in the Black Rose room. The room of the Black Rose. The room of the Black Rose, Mm. but that represents a new future sort of thing. Yeah, well, the I, image. I wanted, yeah, the ro- black roses are actually <laughs> symbolic and they, they're not uh, gothic or deathly or anything like that. It, it, a black rose symbolises the beginning of one life and the start of another, a new, a new start, a new journey. And Annika, who owns the hotel and as an actor, just bought it on a whim kind of thing and they went up to the high country and it was all going to be the most chilled place in the world but it all fell apart financially and so they're kind of running it but just just but say julia 12 years old child prodigy yeah so there's an eccentric another based on i shouldn't say this either based on one of my friend's daughters (laughs) who's now not 12 but she was she is a kind of a business prodigy so she runs the hotel nash Dash. Well, Nash there's a connection. Nash and Dash. Well, we've got a connection here. Dash is an actor. Yeah, well, Nash and Dash are, are twins, but not identical in any way. 
And it's funny, Sophie, because um, I've been working on Neighbours lately as a pot plant, like as an extra, which I've always enjoyed like doing. So I think acting and writing, and, and I really like observing how sets and actors work and how they think. And, I'm, and I did a couple of uh, courses at NIDA. You don't have to be talented, you just have to pay, which was very, very um, challenging for a person who was about 40 years older than everybody else. Really useful though, really useful. As a human, everyone should do it. But I mean, Dash is self-absorbed. He's the actor, he wants, he's got the talent. But he completely self-absorbed. Yeah. Nash tries to explore other experiences. And yeah, Nash is an eco-warrior and Dash is a self-absorbed, um, super-talented, kind of nasty, musical theatre kind of guy. He, he sings. He can do, he's, he's very charismatic when he wants to turn it on, but he really is, underneath mm. it all, he's kind of only about one thing and one person. Now, you said Nash is an eco-warrior because he has a nemesis, uh, Lance, who's a hunter and such like. But here we go. You start to raise ethical dilemmas in this novel because Nash has seen a situation where there's a dry uh, riverbed or the water course has mm. been changed and he knows that at the right moment, at the right time, there could be a uh, collapse of yeah. this. And if Lance happens to be there at the right time, then that gets rid of his nemesis. But it's Andy who's aware of this plan. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And Nash has also added to this dry water course over the years by putting more and more rocks on it because he doesn't want the loggers, he doesn't want the hunters, he doesn't want the, the people who hate him or hate, who hate, let's say, conservationists. Or, he doesn't want them to use this road because he knows it gives them access. And so Andy goes, well, mate, you know, like, what happens if you kill the wrong people and, or, or something happens, which it probably won't, but it could. And Nash says, well, you know, in the, in the high country, Andy, it's a dangerous place and you've got, to, you've got to look out for yourself. But again, in terms of this life journey, what do you do? What do you say? If you are aware, are you morally responsible mm. for um, pointing it out? Well, Andy does try to say, hey, mate, you really shouldn't, you know, what would you think if you, you killed this guy or you, you hurt someone else? Or, and, that, and Nash says, well, on the one hand, yeah, you make a point, and I could probably do it other ways. But, you know, Clinton, who, his dad, who's in, been in prison, goes, he goes, but on the other hand, I am a McGinn, and, you know, maybe I don't care. <laughs> but here we go then. You've introduced Clinton, uh, Annika's, uh, Annika's husband. Ex-husband. Ex-husband, who's an entrepreneur. He's mm. got an opportunity here if he can sell the hotel. Mm. But here we go. Andy is now an observer mm. to all of this. You don't actually go into the into Nicene arguments within the family. Andy can't do anything about this situation, mm. which is really uh, what we're all faced with in life in, in many ways, the, how mm. we cope with situations like that. So yeah, he's an observer, an observer, and he tries subtly to influence Nash. And with Dash, he just feels that he's he can't make much headway with Dash until like maybe the last page of the book where something happens. But yeah, look, it, there's a lot of characters, and um, as Sophie would know, and Lisa would know, and you would know. The work that goes into a book, you know, who knows? Like, you finish it, you just go, oh, I don't even know what I got here, but, you know. And it's interesting, though, Sophie's, Sophie's title is two words, the glow. Mine's nine. <laughs> and, and I know Mark, uh, Sophie's partner, who's a brilliant person. So them as a partnership, 
In counterpoint, my wife is not an illustrator, and this she helps me as a writer, though. She woke up. She was reading my book in bed the other night. She goes, page 49, seven lines from the bottom, there's a typo, and I've gone, thanks. Well, I didn't see the typo. Oh, well, so, good. you know, if, you, no, you've got past one, one reader. It's, it's, a, it's a little one. Yeah. But now we've got all of these unusual guests coming into yeah, this yeah. hotel as well. One of the interesting ones, Adeline. Now, she's from a local family, but also isolated. It's Way a, isolated, what, out in the valley, so far valley. the hotel almost represents an opportunity to start to... Mm. Uh, become part of the wider world, even though the hotel itself is isolated. Yeah, so, well, she comes from, you wouldn't say they're a cult, but they're a, a very, very private family who exist way out in the high country and maybe they're religious, maybe they're not, but they keep to themselves. And Adeline and, you know, she makes snakeskin jewellery she does she's she's a really talented person they have horses um but her mother at long last says because she they took her out of school because and they took nash and dash out of school too because they couldn't do school because they were eccentric wild. But yeah yeah they were wild and adeline's parents didn't agree with it so adeline comes to the hotel and yeah she's a an interesting character and an interesting person to think about and write but again what the hotel can provide for somebody like that, even mm. though the hotel is aberrant in its own way. You've also got Kenny, who's a bit of a thug. Well, Kenny's based on a guy that I met in when I grew up who... We had a... a I grew up in Blackburn. There was a guy who I won't name, but he was like the Fonz anyway. He left Blackburn to join the circus, right? Okay, as a person who put up the tents, right? This is... It was in his stars to do this. Anyway, this person who, I just call him Barry, that's not his name, he, he went off with the carnival. I think he ended up, perhaps he was in, no, prison was later for him, but he brought back this guy with him called Ken, Kenny, who had been in prison. And, like, he was hanging around with us. We were all, like, school kids. And he was, like, really wide and small and tattooed and... But he was, like, he was this lovely guy. He was a lovely guy. And, and I used him, you know, because he was a lovely guy, but he'd been... But he learns in that experience. He over, well, overcomes. He can uh, muscle in if he needs to because he's very protective. But he finds a place. Yeah, and yeah. the hotel is providing a place mm. for all of these aberrant, eccentric characters, which is a bit like what happens in the world. We hope. <laughs> you hope. We hope. If we can find a place for, yeah. for people, well, if we can find a place for actors, we can find a place for anyone, really. Well, I find, having worked in the background with actors, that they live, in a, they live in a kind of a private world and they have their own language and it's, 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 it's extremely interesting to watch them and they're separate. And only, <laughs> they're only separate they, they breed. Are. They're like writers. They, we, they, they know, yeah. we get to the end of the novel and there's a snowstorm. So you've got this culmination. And it's interesting because the snowstorm could effectively be total disaster and catastrophe, figuratively, but it also has the potential to save the hotel. Yeah, that worked, that worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God, you know. Uh, yeah, no, it does. It, it's, it's the, everyone has a secret history, or most of them do, and that's the whole deal. And the secret history is revealed 
over and over with people and um, and the hotel itself. So it's uh... so we learn about the lives of these characters, the philosophy of the hotel. The novel is the secret history of the Rainbow Trout Private Hotel. The author David Metzenthan. And it's a Ford Street publishing release. So, David, thank you very much yeah, for coming hey, Thank in. you for having me, Lisa, David, and great to see Sophie, of course, and hope the listeners get out and read some Australian books. Thank Thanks you. for coming ah. in today. Lovely to meet you.